Welcome to Old Boys Club, a podcast where two young women explain the ins and outs of Australian politics. And there's no such thing as a stupid question. My name is Justine Landis-Hanley. I am a journalist and I used to briefly work in politics. My name is Matilda Bosley. I am also a journalist. End. <laughs> there's, no, there's nothing else you're adding I don't know. Week. I didn't think of a joke before we started. Well, okay. Well, we're running with that then. Coming up on the show today, the federal government finally announced a financial support package for states that go into lockdown. What does this mean for Victoria? Wow, they announced it and the world collectively went, eh, yeah, all right. (laughs) Hey, Matilda, you know that big national homewares company, Harvey Norman? Please tell me more. Yeah, well, they blocked a bunch of people on Twitter this week and then deleted themselves altogether. And we're going to explain what that blowing up has to do with JobKeeper, unions and billionaire dividends. Wow, who knew that Harvey Norman would become the enemy of the people by the end of this week? (laughs) It wasn't one I expected, but if I'd been paying attention, I probably would have guessed. And finally, former Attorney General Christian Porter has decided to discontinue his legal case against the ABC over their reporting of a historic rape allegation that he denies. And no one can seem to decide who the winner out of all of this seems to be. <laughs> and we're going to answer a question that one of you sent in, in a new little segment. We should call that segment Question Time, but that's already our new interview series. There's more than one thing with a question in it and we need a new name. That's the jingle for the segment. Okay. And if anyone else has any other ideas for what we should call that segment, let us know. Send them in. Send them in. Send them in. <laughs> but first, Matilda... How's your week been? Oh, my week was a bit exciting. No, it wasn't. It was totally locked down. <laughs> we're, we're in lockdown. Yeah, but um, I did have one exciting uh, thing. I was driving around um, one of only 20 hydrogen-powered cars in Australia all week. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I don't understand half the words you just said. <laughs> if anyone's ever met me, I don't think they'd be expecting me to be oh. on the on the precipice of car technology. Yes, let me explain. Matilda, when I first met her, she rocked. She's like, I'm going to give you a lift home. And she like walks me over to this car. It's like this red <laughs> bomb, like there's paint Excuse peeling me. off the roof of it. Excuse there's me. There's not even like an aux cord for your phone. No, absolutely not. We don't have that kind of technology. Sometimes if I want to listen to a podcast, I just turn it full volume, stick it, stick the phone in my bra strap. That's how that's the sound system we've got going. Um, no, and you've been, you've missed out the most important part about my car. One of the special features is there is lichen growing off the roof. Um, I do love plants, but maybe not there. Um, so as some people may know, I do actually have a job. It's um, outside this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes this feels all encompassing, but I do actually go to work 40 hours a week. Um, but part of that, I was writing, um, reporting on hydrogen powered cars. As you do. Yeah, it's like an electric car, but not an electric car. It's like a petrol car. You fill it up with hydrogen. It creates no emissions. It creates only water. It's pretty cool, except there's nowhere to charge it up in all of Australia and it's not practically. You know what? Why am I explaining it? Go read my article. Yeah, go read Matilda's article. Yeah, what are you doing? I'll put it on, I don't know. We'll send out a link somewhere or something. (laughs) Um, So, like, I'm meant to be trying out this, like, unbelievably, like, cutting-edge technology, like, fancy car. This is, like, a $90,000 car or something. I'm, like, sliding in the car the first thing. I'm like, oh, my God, it's got Bluetooth. <laughs> That's wow. what impressed you. Yeah. 
I was like, God, this is a step up. <laughs> I mean, it was cool. It was good. Um, but then uh, all of Victoria locked down and um, the uh, Toyota factory uh, that I was borrowing it from, um, they also uh, locked down and the only place to charge it was behind some security gates. And there's literally nowhere else in the whole state to charge it. So we had a rather stressful week rationing <laughs> our fuel to the supermarket. Yeah, some people this week struggled with like, you know, like the – all the supermarkets being totally ravaged and not, you know, worrying about not having enough food. You were worried about not having enough hydrogen for your fancy (laughs) fucking car. (laughs) I mean, uh, on the upside, I did get to take photos of the car and I was lying across the bonnet posing. (laughs) They are hot photos. Let's post one of those photos. (laughs) I'd like that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. But I forgot that, like, um, because me and the photographer were, like, having a a fun time. Chris Hopkins is, like, very, very talented. Uh, But then I forgot that that would go onto, like, the main system where, like, all of my editors have access to it. I got a couple of messages being like, um, this is fantastic, but what on earth is going on? <laughs> this is not the brief <laughs> we sent you with. Me just draped over the top of this expensive car. It was great fun. That's Amazing. been my week. What now a highlight. I, that's, a, that, that's a highlight. Now I'm back in the bomb and I think I might need to buy a new car. Her Why name's Reddy. She's older than I am. <laughs> Maybe not the $90,000 You've gone one. from a $90,000 car to a negative $10,000 I was thinking car. that. No, literally, like, if a gust of wind brushed against it, the insurance company would be like it's not worth us paying you. it's not worth replying we're paying you out for it we'll pay you out three dollars for this car you asked me how my oh, week <laughs> i was dreaming about that hydrogen car <laughs> okay okay hey justine yes matilda how was your week well my week was not as exciting as your hydrogen powered car to it's be a- clear once you're in the car it's just a normal car it wasn't that that exciting i'm just laughing because the story that i thought for this week is such a polar opposite to your glamorous <laughs> life posing on this car so i i've also been in lockdown and you can't have any visitors in lockdown but my partner alex and i one of the producers on this show got a visitor this week you i'm reporting you to the police <laughs> right no, now it wasn't our fault so every day at about 5 30 a.m our neighbor's cat has figured out it should come into our apartment because we have put out food for our own cat so he comes like his name's pepper so this is your visitor a cat yeah he's a cat <laughs> <laughs> and so he comes like toddling in as cats do um in the morning through the back we have like a little there's like there's like a built-in cat flap in the back door and he's very comfortable using it so he just like comes and goes uh at 5 30 a.m and the other day we were lying in bed alex and i and we hear the little jingle jangle of pepper's bell and we're like oh that's cute pepper's coming our cat sunny is just like it's very sweet sunny watches him shares his breakfast with him it's very you know like two pals cat getting brunch it's the cat equivalent of cat Aww. brunch very cute so we like gay? sorry are they gay i think so in my my mind fantasy they are like lovers they Aww. drop each other off to each other's houses they boop i've seen them boop noses so they have a whole romance and I've i'm been, very supportive of it i've been watching too much glee i was like oh it's like blaine and kurt <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so we were like, oh, that's cute. Pepper's just having a little a little nom. Sonny's watching. Okay, we'll go back to sleep. So we're like falling back asleep. And then suddenly we just hear, eh. <laughs> 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 We both look, shoot out of bed and look at Pepper. 
is projectile vomiting <laughs> all of Sonny's <gasps> breakfast up all over the hallway. And so not only did he eat our cat's breakfast, he then proceeded to vomit it up everywhere. He vomited on the back step. It was like it was a me- he's a he's our messy boy. Can I suggest something to you? <laughs> yes. And I I don't want to I don't want to be implicating anyone with guilt here. Could Sonny have poisoned the food? <laughs> did he not want to share? <laughs> Sonny was just like peacefully watching from the bed, like like eat the food, Pepper, <gasps> eat the food. Oh my god! I w- I'm not, but I'm not. I wouldn't put it past. Maybe maybe they had a breakup. Maybe Aww. this is maybe they're like in a having a little argument or something. I, I, poisoning food is not a little argument, Justine. Well, I mean, Pepper has been taking his food for a number of days, so maybe he was just fucking fed up with it, which. What do you, fair. What do you do? Anyway. You, I like the idea. You said to me that Pepper's been coming into your house but then is really skittish. Like, don't he come is. into someone else's house if you're going to be scared when they're in don't their house. Don't come into someone else's house if you're going to vomit all their food up. Yeah. That I also feels that's an rude. essential reason, Pepper. <laughs> anyway, so, yes, we can definitely – see what lockdown has done because that is my most exciting story it was i've told everybody i rang my grandma i rang my aunt i think i might have told my dad about it i I, like that has been my story of the week so that's where we're at if a cat has projectile vomited in your house send us a photo on at old boys club pod on instagram (laughs) please don't send us a photo speaking of old boys club pod on instagram yes i don't know i just saw a dot point that says instagram (laughs) On the the episode plan. (laughs) Okay, yes. Um, So we wanted to say that uh, we have started a newsletter. Wow. Well, we're starting a newsletter. It's launching this Friday. Allegedly. (laughs) (laughs) We plan for the first one to go out this Friday. We've discussed it. We'll see how lockdown goes. We'll see how lockdown goes. If we remain below five average cases a day, the the newsletter will come out this Friday. (laughs) So in the newsletter, we're going to be sharing stories that we didn't have time to cover in the week's episode because there's always a lot. Interesting things that we're reading watching as well as creating this little like survival guide for the week that will be what do what terms do you need to know what will be coming up what you know prepping you for what's going to happen yeah and if you enjoy the podcast you'll definitely love the newsletter it's going to have even more of Matilda and I's personalities in it absolutely do not say that we want people to sign up <laughs> okay okay well no personality none at all straight facts only yeah and some nice graphic design <laughs> the odd swear word so basically the podcast yeah that, that's yeah. great that's yeah that's um, the vibe if you want to sign up to the newsletter we have a link in the bio of our instagram that's that's such, that's such a convoluted go way to, to our go. instagram <laughs> click on the link click on the newsletter and be and fun. sign up and sign up what's our instagram handle Matilda? at old boys club pod at old boys club pod at old boys club pod if we say it three times, then people... It's like Beetlejuice, yeah. It's like, you'll definitely do it. It's like, <laughs> okay. Um, Should we get to some news? Let's get to the news. <laughs> so, Matilda, for our first story this week, Victoria is going into another week of lockdown. I can't wait to <laughs> not learn to cross-stitch once again. <laughs> so, last episode, we talked all about... Who was to blame for this lockdown happening? But this week, there's been a lot more focus on how we're going to financially support people who are in lockdown, and there's been some developments. What happened? Okay, so when the lockdown started last week, it became pretty apparent pretty quickly that this was going to be 
real shit for businesses, it right? Ma- it makes sense. Less less customers, less shifts. Certain businesses can't be open. Yeah. No one's like lockdown. That's when sales will boom. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's bad for businesses. So the Victorian government came out and they said, we're announcing a $250 million rescue package, which was essentially grants to businesses helping them get through the week or the two weeks now, helping them pay the rent, survive. Gotcha. And – the sort of vibe they were going for was that they would announce this quarter of a billion dollar package. They do love to frame it like that, quarter yes, of a billion. It does sound more than if you say it like that. 25. Uh, t- what? $250 million. I can yeah. do maths, babe. <laughs> I'm good at it. Um, the vibe was they would announce this and then the federal government would swoop in and match this with payments for specific workers. Oh, like so the like individuals. Yeah, the wages. Like Victoria will cover the businesses and the business owners. The federal government will come in and supplement the wages of the people who are out of work. Gotcha. Okay, it's kind of like a mini job keeper. Yeah, mini two, job keeper 2.0. And what did the federal government tell them? Absolutely fucking not. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Why? Why did I say that? Uh, so to spoil the rest of the story, they have since softened this stance, as you will see. But originally what they were saying was, you know, locking down is a state's decision. Victoria has done this. They can deal with it, essentially, that the federal government has already provided a lot of support to Victoria. They have given more in sort of pandemic relief to Victoria than any other state because, you know, how um, this second wave. Um, like the 100-day, 100 100-something-day 100 lockdown yeah, last year. No, lots of people were dying. It was horrific. Um, but anyway, that was the federal government's reasoning. There, there are some supports available already. We are funneling a lot of money into Victoria. We have done so for a while. We're not, you know, rebooting JobKeeper or doing something like that because you decided to go into lockdown. Was the, I mean, that was the, the, the vibe. And I'm assuming that Victoria didn't take that news particularly well. No. <laughs> um, so when we first learnt about this business package, we learnt about it in a press conference last week that was dramatic, let's us say. James Molino, the acting premier, stood up and he said, here's our quarter of a billion dollar package. We asked the federal government to pitch in and they said no. Question after question, every time we asked, they said no, 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 no. It's a disgrace. We're so disappointed. Every Victorian should be angry. I'm paraphrasing some of that, but the every Victorian should be angry is a direct quote. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. And Tim Pallas, the state treasurer, uh, was similar. And he even sort of said, we asked the federal government, even if they would put together like a piecemeal, little bits and pieces of support, and then we can pretend we're both on the same side of this. And they still said no. It's, It's some of the most aggressive public politicking we've seen against the federal government in the pandemic. And I think it's probably important to just jump in and say that the state government does have a bit of an ulterior motive with this kind of rhetoric. Yeah, it definitely benefits the Labor government in Victoria if instead of spending too much time thinking about the lockdown, we're spending a lot of time thinking about how the Liberal federal government is letting us all down. Yes. Right? There's no point beating around the bush there. Like, this is not a comment on whether that criticism is legitimate or not. It's a sort of factual thing that the more angry Victorians are at the federal government, kind of the better it is for the state at the moment. Okay. But you mentioned that the federal government changes their mind. So how did their rhetoric change over the last week? Yeah. So in the past week, we've been getting like little 
little bits and pieces of these conversations that have been going on inside the federal government. And one thing that several newspapers reported was this idea that one of the key concerns that the federal government had was that if they sort of went all in with financial supports for states that locked down, that it would possibly encourage states to go into lockdown Uh, or at least it would take away some of the pain, the financial pain of going into lockdown and therefore potentially make a lockdown seem like a more viable option. And the federal government is not big on locking down. Right. Okay. So what I'm hearing is that when states are deciding whether or not to go into lockdown, it's usually a toss up between how much do we want to risk people's health and lives and well-being versus how much do we want to risk their financial well-being and the consequences that that might have on their long-term well-being in other areas. And so if the federal government takes away some of that financial costs in the way up, it'll make it easier for state governments to go, you know what, let's just head into lockdown. Now, Justine, does does this reasoning sound familiar to you at all? Yes, it sounds a lot like the way the federal government talks about other kinds of welfare support like unemployment benefits. That Indeedly do. <laughs> that they don't want to give lots of unemployment benefits or, or money to people who are struggling with employment because they don't want people to feel like they can just fall back on that system and then not stand on their own two feet. Yeah, if you make it too easy to live off unemployment benefits, then no one will want to get a job, essentially. If you crystallise down the Liberal government sort of views on all philosophy. of philosophy. Ra- yeah, ph- thank you very much. The philosophy <laughs> on this side of things, it kind of comes down to that. And there is a lot of people who contest that line of logic when it comes to welfare benefits, mm. as there has been a lot of people who have contested that line of logic as it applies to lockdowns. But the federal government did change its mind eventually in, in this situation. Indeed, they did. And on Thursday, they announced a rescue package, but it's not just for Victoria. Give me the details, Matilda. Okay. Hit me with the with the facts. Let's go. So, yes, the federal government will be paying wage payment, wage supplement, rescue package, whatever you want to call it. Um, but there's some very specific caveats on it. Would you like to hear them? Yes. Okay. So it's for areas that have been declared a hotspot by the Commonwealth guidelines, which, you know, the nationally agreed upon guidelines of what a COVID hotspot actually is. Okay. It has to be declared as such, and then it has to have been locked down for more than seven days, more than a week mm-hmm. to unlock the, the magic of this package. Locked down for a week, you unlock the package. Which you may notice that actually means that only people in Melbourne are eligible for this already, not regional Victoria, because they came mm. out of lockdown for a week. Melbourne is staying in for the extra week. The regions are going back to semi-normal life. Okay, so you've got to be declared a COVID hotspot. You've got to be in lockdown for more than a week. Any others? Yes, many more. So that's, that's when you might be eligible. Here's who you have to be to be eligible. You have to be older than 17. Yep. Uh, you have to have usually been working more than 20 hours a week and you have to prove that because of the lockdown you will be working less hours than that and that you have lost income because of the pandemic. Okay, and what do you get? Oh, no, no, there's more. There's oh, more. Sorry. sorry. No, no, no. We're not done. Okay. We've got some more dot points okay, on this. Okay, keep going. Yep. Um, but <laughs> in order to be eligible, you must have also used up all pandemic sick leave or other leave that your employer offers you. Okay. And 
you must have less than $10,000 in liquid assets available to you. So that's basically like money in the bank. Okay. Yeah. And if you meet all these criteria, then you are eligible. I haven't even got to the payment yet. Then you are eligible for either a $500 payment or a $325 payment. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So if you meet all those requirements, then you get an injection of cash. Yeah. So you may notice that that sounds like a fairly specific group. And I think that is very intentional, which Scott Morrison pitched this package as like, this is something to get people through the week. This is like the people who absolutely couldn't survive without it. We are giving them enough to survive with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Something that strikes me about these payments, Matilda, is that if you're working 20 hours a week, you're probably earning more than $500 in wages. So if you can't work that week, it's not like these payments are replacing this, the amount of money that you would be losing probably. Yeah, and that's the way it's been pitched as well, which is this isn't – I think it's much more of a rescue package than a wage supplement package. The way Scott Morrison actually sort of announced it was like this is for people who just need something to get through the week. This is about helping people survive really tough circumstances rather than sort of really cushioning the economic blow of lockdown. Right. So lockdown's still going to suck for people, but just not let them die. Yeah. Gotcha. Which, I mean, good. It's something. Can't, can't fault them for that. <laughs> uh, and by the way, this isn't just for Victoria as well. Like with those geographic requirements, this could be any state going forward that goes into a week-long lockdown as well. So this is this is establishing a sort of rescue package federal government funding framework for the rest of COVID times. Gotcha. And is it fair to say, Matilda, that the general reaction to this announcement has been kind of like, meh, like good but not great? Yeah, it's kind of like, yeah, sure. I mean, that's what we... I guess that's I guess that's I guess that's what we asked and I guess, I guess you delivered and then kind of moved on pretty quickly. You know, like this hasn't I mean it was dominating the headlines that day, but mm. this hasn't been sort of continuing throughout the weekend and things like that. And I I think it could be argued that that was almost what the federal government was going for with mm. something like this. So we explained before that difficult situation they're in where it's like they don't want to be seen as like supporting lockdowns. They don't want to be seen as cushioning the blow too much. They don't want states in Australia to lock down. They want the New South Wales model where you sort of stay open and control it through contact tracing. Mm. So announcing a giant lockdown package wouldn't necessarily kind of be going with, um, you know, their philosophy when it comes to this pandemic. But also doing nothing really leaves them open to pretty sharp, direct and effective, as we saw last week, attacks from the Victorian government. So this move sort of neutralizes their ability to be painted as the bad guy without really sort of going back on what they previously said was their tactic when it comes to lockdowns. And that's particularly important if we have a federal election in the next year, which we probably will. They don't really want all of Victoria to just like <laughs> vote no to the federal uh, government. Yeah, we don't. We're like, it's it's a decent whack of the population. They're wanting <laughs> they're wanting at least you know some favorable views. Uh, random side note about the Victorian um, lockdown. Uh, imagine if uh, Daniel Andrews finally comes back in the middle of lockdown. <laughs> sort of <laughs> Jesus-like walks through the wall. <laughs> he has risen. I'm here. Although, Melino, people like him. Brett Sutton's hotter. Oh. <laughs> Speaking of JobKeeper. Yes. Uh, Harvey Norman. 
Yes. That, that old furniture slash tech store. <laughs> um, they've, they've gosh darn gone and deleted their Twitter, haven't they, after experiencing a poop load of outrage this week over JobKeeper payment. I, a, a collection of words I did not expect in a sentence. Yeah. What? in the heck is going on, Justin? <laughs> okay, so to understand what has happened this last week and all the drama, there's a lot of drama that has unfolded, we need to go back a few months and understand this ongoing scandal between Harvey Norman and JobKeeper. <sighs> sure. Cut to the flashback. <laughs> okay. I hated that we just did that. I hate that so much. Okay, okay. Let's, let's never do it again. Okay. <laughs> Explain to me, JobKeeper. Okay, so during the pandemic, Harvey Norman, like a lot of companies, accessed the government's JobKeeper scheme. What's JobKeeper? For those who may not remember, it feels like a long time ago, March March 2020 feels like a long time ago when it was announced. Oh, heck. JobKeeper was the federal government's scheme to help businesses that had been significantly impacted by the coronavirus and the lockdowns to keep paying their staff's wages. If your business was expecting to lose more than 50% of its revenue, then the government would pay, what was it, $1,500 a fortnight to all all of the staff that you had to stand down. That was the long and short of it. Yes, yes. And so a lot of companies access this scheme. Well, I mean, a lot of companies were feeling like they were going to be losing a heck of a lot of revenue. But we're learning now that actually a number of these big corporations that access JobKeeper actually earned more money in 2020 than they did in 2019. And one of those companies was Harvey Norman. Yeah. the <laughs> Yeah. Uh, it was meant to be like, we'll keep you afloat. It wasn't meant to be like, we'll help you. You can make millions <laughs> and millions in profits because you haven't fully had to pay your stuff. Yes. And Harvey Norman, so they received about $22 million in JobKeeper payments. They're a huge company. They have uh, shops all across the country. They employ a lot of people. So they got a lot of money out of JobKeeper. But uh, they got this money even though their profits more than doubled. And last year they made $462 million in the pandemic. Yeah. So like other companies that made large profits include what Nine Entertainment, yep. Toyota, and they've those two specifically and a number of others have actually promised to pay back their JobKeeper money. They're like, you know what? We actually did pretty well. Yeah. We didn't need this government support. In, like, the name of, like, good Aussie spirit, we're going to give this money back. Well, yeah, it's important because it is also, like, it's taxpayer money. So it's a bunch of – it's, like – your money, my money, a lot of other people's money going to support these big companies that didn't actually need it. Yeah, because it was meant to be supporting the workers and it turns out those companies could have supported their own workers in retrospect. Yeah. So, Justine, is Harvey Norman going to pay back that money? Fuck no. (laughs) So, back in February, the founder of Harvey Norman, Jerry Harvey. Not Norman? No, he's the ha- he's the he's, he's the, the Harvey, Harvey of the Norman. Oh, yeah, I assume that that was always a first and a last name. I didn't know it was Turns two. Out, no, oh, two best friends. <laughs> so two best friends sitting in a furniture store. They might kiss. <laughs> <laughs> so he flat out refused to pay back the twenty two million dollars or so in JobKeeper, and the reason why this is so controversial is because they're going to pay their shareholders. $250 million in dividends. So, like, when companies make lots of money, they pay their shareholders a bit of that money 
so that, you know, the people who've, you know, invested in them, they get a bit of money back, they get a little kickback. And so because Harvey Norman doubled its profits last year, its shareholders are going to get a shit ton of money, including, including, importantly, Jerry Harvey himself, who's going to pocket around $78 million. How much is Norman getting? I don't know. Is Norman still alive? I don't know. Google it. This is an investigation. <laughs> um, so, yes. So, Jerry Harvey, going to make a lot of money. Shareholders going to make a lot of money. Companies made a lot of money. But the Australian government and the taxpayer has also given them a lot of money. And there's questions about whether or not they should have done that. Okay. So, the, we've we've seen that there was this flaw in the JobKeeper system, which is essentially <laughs> there was no sort of provision for like, what if it turns out they didn't need it? But JobKeeper ended a while ago. Why are we talking about it now? Okay. So, we're talking about it this week because the ACTU, which is the Australian Council of Trade Unions, they're a really big trade union organisation advocacy group. It's all the unions joined together and they're, they're like advocators together. They, the unions have unionised. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's like it's like if I can throw back to episode one, it's like the Power Rangers of the <gasps> unions. All the little unions come together and they form one big super body and they go after Harvey Norman. <laughs> Love that. So they launched a campaign aimed at getting Harvey Norman to pay back this JobKeeper money, this $22 million in JobKeeper money, um, among some other things. Take a they, shot every time we say JobKeeper money. <laughs> they had some other issues with Harvey Norman, like how much they pay their staff. But, that you know, that's for another day. Um, and they protested outside Harvey Norman's stores. They went on Twitter and they told everyone to boycott Harvey Norman. And Harvey Norman, the company Harvey Norman. Okay, I thought you were going to say Jerry Harvey. No, the company Harvey Norman. The company Harvey Norman gets pretty pissed off and they decide that the healthy way to take out this anger is on Twitter. Uh, I don't think Harvey Norman, the giant company, and me after two glasses of wine should have similar ideas on what the best place to put our emotions <laughs> are. Yeah, so the, they unfortunately they did. Um, and last weekend, Harvey Norman went on Twitter and they just went on like a blocking spree. Like, I don't know who was controlling the reins. It's like a weekend, so we really don't know. But there is someone at some computer somewhere being like, Fuck you, Adam Bant, leader of the Greens. <laughs> Fuck you, Sally McManus, secretary of the ACTU. And he, they just start blocking all these people. Basically, Labor government ministers, everything. But like a Labor, like a Victorian Labor government minister who later he was like, I have never seen this Twitter account before. <laughs> like, I did not even know they, they blocked me. Um, things also started to get pretty serious. And one user on Twitter, at S-I-S-Y physical, I'm not sure you pronounce the first part there, they said that working for the company, quote, drove me to suicide in six months. Now, that already is horrifying to read. What made the situation so much worse oh, no. was that Harvey Norman's official Twitter account replied to this person. Oh, no. With a facepalm emoji and a hand like a bye waving emoji. I, my, my jaw is open. <laughs> You are aghast. Yeah. <laughs> and that, like, I, I, it's, it's humor. Like, it's a ridiculous situation. So I feel like we're coming at that with humor, but that's really serious. I remember that I, I didn't believe this when I first saw it. I saw someone retweet the Harvey Norman, the screenshot of that interaction. And I was like, that's not real. Like, someone's, this is a joke. Someone's photoshopped that. Ha ha. No, no, it was real. Yikes. And then the following Tuesday, so last Tuesday, Harvey Norman 
suddenly just deleted the account altogether. Like deleted the official Harvey Norman Twitter account altogether. So they just blocked themselves in the they end. The final, like, the final blocking. It kind of feels like after you wake up um, after a long <laughs> night and you see like on Instagram you've gone and like sent people all these messages. You've like liked your ex's new girlfriend's 2010 Instagram posts and you're just like, I have to delete. I have to get out of this situation immediately. Like, I no, no, no. That's the corporate world of like waking up and pressing delete on the Insta story. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So that's mm, uh, mm, that's what it is. Uh, back to the JobKeeper side of things. What's the federal government going to do about this? Because obviously this is shining much brighter light on this idea of companies that have made profit off JobKeeper. Yeah. So uh, the answer is uh, the federal government's doing nothing uh, at the moment. <laughs> so the federal government's finance minister, Simon Birmingham. Different to the treasurer. Yes, they're yep. different people. I uh, spent the first 20 years of my life confused about that. <laughs> Two different jobs. What's the difference in their jobs? Still working it out. Different <laughs> don't, jobs. Don't know that part, but we do know that they're separate people. So so Simon Birmingham, he went on ABC News Breakfast this week and he said, and I've got a quote for you, Matilda. Okay, thank you. He said, I quote, I think companies who are in a position to pay some of the money back ought to look at doing so where indeed they did benefit out of the overall situation. But that is an individual company's proposition. Yeah. So essentially they're like, yeah, it would be the good Aussie true blue spirit thing to do to pay this back. But we have no legal grounds to make you pay this back. Yeah. (laughs) And in fairness, like it would be very tricky for the federal government to essentially retroactively write this law. Like the legislation, JobKeeper was put out in a rush because it was a fucking emergency, right? Like there wasn't the sort of normal processes of spending months and months and months carefully crafting every word of this legislation. And one of the things, and I think the federal government government's actually said like you know uh if we could have foreseen this happening like maybe that we could have put some stuff in but like suddenly retroactively changing a law that would make people have to pay back millions is a pretty difficult thing to do. Yes, and it's been a really uh, wonderful opportunity for Labor and the Greens. They've really, like, this is, like, a real sticking point for the government. They're kind of, like, driving the stake into the side, like, oh, you guys fucked up here now. Like, billion-dollar companies are making some more millions. So Yeah, Australia hates the rich. Australia hates the rich. And it's real easy to fucking land one on the government when they accidentally help them. Yes. So things are kind of looking pretty dire in terms of actually forcing these companies to pay money back, especially Harvey Norman. Harvey Norman's not going to do it. The government can't make them. All that anyone can do is really like get a bit angry and have a Twitter war. But hopefully with this extra money, yeah, it'd be great if Harvey Norman just hired a new social media person. <laughs> yeah, they have so much extra cash yeah, to pay with. Maybe instead of paying their dividends to their like, you know, corporate shareholders yeah, yeah they should maybe just put a little bit of money towards like one of those 22 <laughs> just just one really million like dollars. A, a decent social media manager maybe some like uh empathy Junior. counseling like oh. i just yeah someone for the instagram someone for the twitter please invest harvey <laughs> So, Matilda, for our final story, we're going to be talking about none other than Christian Porter. Yeah. And we're going to be talking about it pretty cautiously. Why is that? Yeah. It's a story about people getting sued for defamation. Yes, and we don't want that to happen to us. <laughs> yeah, which may, which inherently makes this topic legally tricky to discuss. Yes. Um, but it's also still really, really important to discuss. And what happened this week is actually really confusing. So we're wanting to break it down. We just will be doing so with 
some caution and perhaps in a lower octave than oh, usual. Oh, yes, we should probably. <laughs> Our voices are quite high and nervous right now. <laughs> oh, God, what did I um, no. Okay, let's dive in. So last week, the former Attorney General Christian Porter decided to discontinue his legal case for defamation against the ABC. Matilda, explain to me, what was the lawsuit about? Okay, so this lawsuit was all about an article that was published by the ABC, written by Australia-famous investigative reporter Louise Milligan. Yes, you may know her from basically every major investigation in this country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. She's amazing. We yeah. love her. George Pell, that was her. Um, and other people, a lot of it was her. Um, so in this article, what was reported was that the Prime Minister's office had received a letter which laid out a historical allegation of rape made against one of his senior cabinet ministers. Mm-hmm. Now, we now know this cabinet minister was Christian Porter. In the original article itself, uh, he wasn't named, but the Prime Minister's office did say that this minister denied these allegations and there's been steadfast ever since in denying these allegations. Now, what the ABC has said was that this article wasn't ever suggesting that these allegations were true. It wasn't, you know, sort of declaring the guilt of this senior cabinet minister. It was reporting the fact that these allegations had been made and the Prime Minister's office was aware of that. Gotcha. Okay. And so I said that Porter wasn't named, but everyone guessed fairly quickly. Yes, there's there's not a lot of senior cabinet ministers. I mean, yeah, it was a small pool to begin with. It uh, was fairly kind of talked about around the edges. There was a lot of rumours going around. Some alternative media sites actually named uh, Porter and it got to the point where none of the major media sites had named him at all. But if you like Googled terms related to the case, like Christian Porter's name would come up on Twitter and stuff like that. They're like the algorithms had even cottoned on. It was like, it got to the point where there was kind of a consensus on who it was about before Porter ever made a statement about this. Right, but Porter did make a statement about this. Yeah, so several days later, Porter called a press conference in WA and he essentially identified himself and in this press conference categorically, repeatedly denied that these allegations had any truth to them and also was quite scathing of how the media had treated this situation. He was saying that this was a trial by media, that he was sort of being unfairly maligned and, you know, had very specific issues with the way that the ABC had gone about reporting the case. So talk to me about what happened after that. Yes, so Christian Porter did a number of things, took a leave of absence, but amongst those things was he sued the ABC for defamation. Yeah, defamation is a big word that gets tossed around a lot, but it's essentially if you feel that your reputation has been publicly damaged by anyone uh, and that you have sort of suffered consequences of that, you can sue for defamation and essentially ask for compensation for the damage that was done to your reputation. Yes, so Christian Porter commenced defamation proceedings against the ABC and in particular... Louise Milligan. And he took those proceedings in the federal court to counter, quote, false allegations against him in relation to a person who he met when he was a teenager. But not only was Christian Porter suing the ABC over defamation, like the fact that these reports had impacted upon his reputation negatively, Mm. but he was also accusing the journalist Louise Milligan of engaging in a campaign against him. Yeah. And he said that these reports were really unfair. Now, one of the reasons why he said they were unfair was because the woman who made these allegations against him had very sadly taken her own life a year before they were made public. And another complicating factor was that the alleged crime had taken place decades ago. 
So without the alleged victim being able to make a formal police statement, there's really kind of no way that a case like this could be fully investigated by police. Mm. And so there wouldn't be no criminal investigation, no real civil investigation. So that was sort of part of, of this whole defamation process, which is essentially like this will never be sort of proven one way or another. So bringing this up is kind of creating a trial by media situation. Yeah. And so Christian Porter said that Louise Milligan had acted with malice by publishing this story despite the impossibility of any finding of guilt or civil liability against him. Like there was no way that this could ever go to trial. So the fact that this story was published anyway was malicious. Okay, so these are the grounds that he's suing on. There was a bit of controversy about him even suing using defamation laws in the first place. Talk me through it. Yeah, so Christian Porter, at the time that all this was going down, he was the Attorney General. And for those who don't know, the Attorney General is like the one of the highest legal authorities in the country. They're like the minister for law. <laughs> yeah, they're they're the boss lawyer, right? <laughs> Basically. So there was all this hoo-ha about whether Christian Porter should be allowed to sue the ABC while he was also the attorney general. But also he was tasked at the time with doing a review of defamation laws in the country. So the fact that he was going to bring his own defamation case against the ABC, it just... It didn't quite feel right. Yeah. Defamation laws in Australia are much stricter than in a lot of other countries. And that was something that the government was going to be looking at. And then that might be more difficult if those defamation laws being strict was directly benefiting potentially the person who was deciding whether they should be strict or not, you feel? Yes. And by strict, we mean that it's a lot easier for people to sue for defamation in Australia than in other countries. And it's a lot harder for a defendant to win a defamation case as well. And in fairness, he did say he was going to shuffle those responsibilities elsewhere someone else would deal with the defamation stuff. Turns out it doesn't actually even really matter anymore because there was a big cabinet reshuffle and whoops, would you look at that, he's not Attorney General anymore anyway. Well, that's convenient. (laughs) Um, So months go by, we're hearing a thing here and there about the case, things are kind of chugging along and then all of a sudden, out of the blue last week, the case we find out is no longer a thing. Yeah. But there's all this confusion over like who won who lost? Was this case settled? Was it dropped? Was it a victory for Porter? Was it a victory for the ABC? It's a mess. And every news site seems to have a different headline. So Matilda, walk me through what happened that day. Okay. So for us on the sidelines, it felt (laughs) a bit out of the blue. I'm sure it wasn't out of the blue for everyone involved, but (laughs) essentially the news came through that suddenly these legal proceedings are being discontinued And no damages were being paid. So this wasn't like it's naturally concluded like, oh. There's a a clear winner here. Yeah, Christian Porter's being awarded X amount of dollars by the ABC and they're apologising and taking down the article. It wasn't anything like that. It's that these legal proceedings aren't going ahead anymore. Okay, so Christian Porter has decided to discontinue the case. What does the ABC do? So, yes, the ABC didn't publish an apology. They didn't take down the article, but they did put out a statement which essentially said, we stand by this report. We believe that it was still in the public interest for this report to go out, but we admit that some people misinterpreted this to be us saying that these allegations could be substantiated in some way or that there was some truth to the allegations. And that's not what we intended and we regret that some people interpreted it like that. It was very carefully worded and, yeah, it wasn't a sorry. And what did Porter do in response? How did he characterise this situation? Yeah, so Porter comes out and he holds this press conference and essentially says, 
I absolutely bloody won. I am the victor. And uh, this is sort of an embarrassing backtrack from the ABC. Clearly, I've been vindicated. This is this is my day. You know, like he was very much like, I won this thing. Okay, but did he win? Like who who actually won? <laughs> yeah, that's the question of the hour, isn't it? <laughs> I, I mean, like I, I, I think it's safe to say that like assigning a winner or loser to this situation is kind of you, – you're going to be defeated in that mission. But – his characterization of this was a bit confusing because, as we said, like, he wasn't paid any damages. Like, that's the goal in a defamation case, right? The record gets set straight and you're paid sort of the damages that that had caused you. Neither of those things happened. The ABC didn't take down the article. They made a clarification and, as it turns out, they paid the mediation costs, but they didn't pay money to Christian Porter. So I think people were quite like, okay, and this led to a lot of confusion about in the media about what was really going on. Yes, and the ABC even released another statement after that press conference kind of refuting Christian Porter's tone of victory, let's say. Yeah. Yeah, saying that it was there's not really a, a clear winner in this situation. Yeah, I mean, Christian Porter was saying like, "Oh, this is a clear. This is clearly shows that this was sensationalist reporting. This the clearly ABC shows should be embarrassed." And that the and he's like, "The ABC's admitted that they regret publishing the article." And the ABC's like, "We didn't say that. We said that we regret that some people misinterpreted the article. That is not the same thing. We do not believe that this article is sensationalist. It was a whole mess." Also, Matilda, I'm curious who approached who to settle the case in this situation. Like, who tried to settle the case outside of court. Yeah, so on Wednesday, The Guardian Australia reported that it was Christian Porter who first approached the ABC with an offer of settlement, an offer that sort of said, you pay me this modest sum of money in damages, I'll drop the case, like a, a normal legal People settlement. People often settle outside it's, of court. Is how the majority of these cases end. The Guardian also reported that this offer was rejected by the ABC. Then it seems there was a lot of – there was some back and forth that we really don't know what went on and then, you know, obviously at the end of the day we got the result that we got. But there's still a lot of questions left unanswered about exactly what happened. So that's where we're at today. What comes next? Are we ever going to get these answers? Maybe. In the way that politicians get a lot of answers, Senate estimates. <laughs> so we've talked on the show before about Senate estimates. The Senate, the upper house in Parliament, they have various committees that sporadically throughout the year get to ask questions of other government ministers and public officials. Yeah, They're not supposed to sit this week, but the Committee for Communications will hold a special hearing as early as this week, during which the ABC's managing director, David Anderson, is going to attend. And uh, it seems like there's going to be questions around who proposed the settlement outside of court, why the public broadcaster agreed to it, all the juicy goss that we want answers to. We mentioned they paid mediation fees. We might find out actually how much they paid. Exactly. So one for you guys to keep an eye out and something that we'll be keeping an eye out and probably talking to you about on our Instagram this week. I just like the idea that the senators got together and like, let's fucking sort this out. <laughs> Everyone get back. We're gonna we have a we, we were gonna have a fucking week off, but we're coming back. We're doing it again. <laughs> <laughs> It's a segment where you send in a voice note and we answer that question now. <laughs> I love how we have like an audio 
composer who's made us beautiful music for this show and you're like, I'm going to write the theme music for this new segment. This sting will be done live, baby. (laughs) So if you didn't listen to last week's episode, Matilda and I have launched a new segment on the show where you guys send in a voice memo with a question about anything to do with politics and we answer it or do our best to. We'll answer the ones that we can. (laughs) And we got a great question this week from a lovely listener called Lucy Roberts. So let's play the clip. Hi Matilda and Justine, my name is Lucy and I was wondering why Australia has three-year terms when most countries in the world have four or five-year terms and what you think the pros and cons of this is. Okay, this is a really interesting question and the answer is it's all because of our constitution. Oh God, I'm literally asleep, Justine. Tell me it's going to get more interesting. It does get more interesting. I'm going to talk to you about why we have three-year terms, but also whether we should have three-year terms. I'm going to do it in like two minutes. Okay. Hit me. Okay. So the reason we have a constitution is basically because way back when the constitution was drafted, the people who wrote it thought, hey, this would be a good period of time, three years, because that's how long most of the colonies in Australia have their people sitting in parliament for, for. context australia before we were a country <laughs> were a series of small co- well before that it was there was 40,000 years of indigenous history yes. in the brief time after the colonization it was a series of settlements that kind of ran sort of semi independently like if you think about the states were almost like all their own individual countries yeah and, and then, then federation then, happened yeah and then they became like, a, a big country what if we fucking join up mate <laughs> Power Rangers, my (laughs) reference prevails. (laughs) Okay, so they decide to join everyone up. They write the constitution. They're like, well, everyone's doing three years anyway. We should just do three years. Funny fact, though, nowadays, almost all the states have at least four-year terms in parliament. So it's only the federal (laughs) government that's still doing three years. They're like, ah, fuck, we really should have, like, thought this through. (laughs) So is is there some benefit of three years over four years? Yeah, okay. So this topic has been debated a lot in the last few decades because it's really unusual that Australia has only three-year terms for our politicians. So 90% of countries around the world have like four or five year terms like for their be, sitting politicians. You'd be very familiar with the presidential term in the US, which is a, a very set four years, almost to like the day of the week. Yes. So some people think that three year terms are a good thing though, because it helps us beam a more democratic country. Why? Because if you have more frequent elections, then the people have more power to kick people out and choose who which people are in power and we just have more of a say over the running of, of politics. Yeah, essentially the year before an election, you're going to be thinking a lot about how the people feel about all policies. And the argument for shorter terms would be the more often you have an election year, the more often that's on politicians' minds. But also the more power that we have as people to just like kick people out we don't like. Like, you know, if someone fucks up two years in, we've only got another year to like wait and then we can kick them out and bring someone else in. No, True. What would be the argument for longer terms, though? That's the argument for shorter ones. Why do other people not do this? Okay. So there have been a lot of debates, as I said, in Australia about whether we should move to four-year terms. And a couple of the reasons are, sure, we have more elections with three-year terms, but elections are really expensive. And like, not only for political parties like they have to raise a lot of money people have to put a lot of money into those elections but also a lot of money goes into just like the running of an election so if politicians had longer terms in parliament we'd be saving some money on the number of elections we're having but there's also like political reasons why Uh, the big one being that 
we had longer terms for politicians, then politicians could make longer term plans. They could be writing policies that they would spend like four or five years seeing come into action. So that's a benefit. There's also an argument, right, that like sometimes politicians have to do the unpopular but necessary thing in order to keep the country running and having less election years would make it easier to sort of do that. Maybe I'm now that I'm saying it out loud, is this arguing for a dictatorship? <laughs> do you just now, want dictatorship? Now that I'm saying it, but like that's essentially the idea, whereas like if we have to do the tough shit, it's a lot harder to do that if you're constantly worried about the next election yeah. and sometimes the tough shit has to get done. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Another interesting fact is that often our elections – are less than three years yeah, apart. I can't remember the last time we actually made it to the full three bloody years. <laughs> and that's because the Prime Minister in Australia has the power to call the elections whenever they and their political party would like. Uh, and often it is... Uh, Within like a year's span. Yeah, they, they can't just call it whenever they want. It can't but- be like day two, new election. <laughs> But they can call it, you know, within a, a certain period of, of three years. And often it's a little bit early. So it can sometimes feel that we're having elections every like two and a half years. No, we really, there's some, we, Australians go to the polls, like with all of our different elections, like a lot more than a lot of, like a lot of other countries. Yeah. And also you legally have to go to the polls here. Yes, yes. And the reason for that is because the political party in power and the prime minister, they choose whatever day is most politically advantageous to them. So if they're having like a really good run, they're going to call an election. If they're having, you know, if they're really unpopular at the time, they're maybe going to wait until they do something good or until the other party's in the shit. So like- Wait a second. That seems familiar. I feel like when we were doing like really well out of COVID and everyone was like really happy with the federal government, we were talking about an election in 2021 and after March for Justice and a bunch of other situations happened and the vaccine rollout started doing badly. Now we're talking about an election in 2022. Exactly, yes. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's yeah, right. No, yeah, you're that's on, that's you're on point. Some okay. bad things have been happening lately, so probably the next election is going to be next year. Closer to three years this time. Coming back to whether or not three years is a good thing. Yes, it makes us an outlier compared to a lot of the rest of the world. There are arguments about whether we should move to four or five-year terms, but at the end of the day, a lot of the benefits that we just mentioned that would come from having four or five-year terms, like there's not a lot of proof we're not actually sure whether those benefits would actually come about from having four or five year terms so maybe it's safer to stick with three years also states why you gotta go dick over the federal government like that and change it to four years now they look embarrassed (laughs) yeah this is the state's fault (laughs) god bless them That is the first segment of you send in a voicemail with a question about the politics and then we answer it. If you would like to have your voice memo featured in the next episode, send us a voice memo on Instagram, please. To at Old Boys Club Podgers. In your Messengers app, you just click voice memo and you send it to us. And while you're there, sign up to our newsletter. Yeah, definitely. Okay, but that's all we have time for this week. <laughs> we got through it. We're in lockdown, baby. We're tired. We're very tired. Okay, before we wrap up this week, we have some people to thank. Every week, if you shout us out on Instagram, take a photo of you listening to this episode, take a photo of your phone listening to this episode, chuck it on Instagram stories, tag us at Old Boys Club. We see it. We shout you out. So we've got some people to thank. So we'd like to thank Christine, Chayonce and the Cat. How cute. The Nasty Woman Club, Pedestrian TV, Beck, She Is Legend podcast, Spotify made a video. Thank you. 
Thank you, Spotify. Elizabeth, Jessica, Bree, Claire, Sally, Odd Teachers Creature, Lauren, Tegan, Shian, Kayla, Rose, Tegan, Catherine, Fran, Sebastian, and Saxon Mullins. Big old shout out to Saxon Mullins. Go listen to our last episode if you want to hear our amazing interview with her. Yeah, she was incredible, and it's our new little bonus episode series, so go check that out. Question time with Saxon Mullins. I mean, it won't always be Saxon Mullins. It'll always be question time. But there'll be other people, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stay okay, tuned. Yeah. I'd have her back every week, honestly. I would too. <laughs> I love her. Before we go, we'd like to acknowledge this podcast was recorded on the land of the Burrawang people of the Eastern Kulin Nation, and we pay our respects to elders past and present. This land was stolen and never ceded. And we would also like to acknowledge the country that you are joining us from and pay our respects to any other Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who are listening today. The theme music for Old Boys Club Pod is by the amazing Alexis Weaver. Our show is produced by Anthony Furchie and Alex Ty. Mixing and editing by Anthony Furchie and Alex Ty. I'm Justine Landis-Hanley. I'm Matilda Bosley. And, and this, this is Old Boys Club. Club. Time to get locked down again. <laughs> I'm just going to sneakily drink. My eyes <laughs> Sorry, while in. you're talking, I'll just sneakily drink. One second. <laughs> I always, I Uber Eats a single iced coffee to myself and it cost me $13. It's been a week, Justine. <laughs> <laughs>